you very much. Well, a warm welcome from me, and if you're used to coming to Christchurch, you will know that our, in these past couple of years, we've often stopped in between our teaching series and had a chance to ask a big question. And we've just finished a teaching series in Titus, and next week we're going to be going into John's Gospel. But today, our big question this morning is, is God sexist? Well, the answer's no. So, should we head for tea and coffee? Is that all right, folks? Um, okay. I, I actually feel um, like I've done so much thinking around this over the years that actually I found it incredibly hard to try and put together a succinct talk. But this is how we're going to work through it today. We're going to have a bit of a look at the overview of the Bible story very quickly because how we see men and women and God in the great big story of God will impact how we then view in on individual passages. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at um, very briefly at some of those trigger passages like the one that Valerie just read to us, Wives Submit to Your Husbands, those passages which uh, for some people today kind of makes them think, oh, is the Bible kind of advocating some sort of 1950s housewife work role for women and that, that's all there is and that just seems very sexist to me. And then finally, we're going to look at female leadership in the church and questions around whether women can lead. So, here we go. <laughs> Overview of the big story. Well, it starts with our creation narratives in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and in the first account, we get humankind being created by God and then being created male and female. And in verses 28 to 31 of Genesis 1, we hear God say to both the man and the woman that they are to rule together over creation. When we move into Genesis 2, we get a sort of second account of the story, a slightly different account. And here the man is uh, seemingly created first, and then the woman is created afterwards. But God looks at the man, having looked at all of creation and said, it's very good. He looks at the man and he says, this is not good. The man should not be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. And what's happened over the years is that somehow this idea that maybe man was created first and because of our perception as to what a helper might be like, there has at times been uh, certain parts of the church, certain parts of teaching, which has seemed to then sort of make the man perhaps more significant than the female who maybe is lower in a sort of helper role. And I just want to unpack that just very briefly because I don't think that's what's being said in Genesis at all. Firstly, we need to understand that God is neither male nor female, and yet the man and the female together somehow reflect the image of God. They are both image bearers of God. And they are equally needed to reflect God in the world. Okay. 
Now, we also need to look at what it means that the woman was created as helper. The word for helper in Hebrew is Ezra, and it means this. It means to actively intervene in situations of oppression and injustice, particularly in military contexts. The word itself is used about God himself. A helper isn't a passive hang-along servant type. Perhaps in our day and age, it might be easier to hear the word warrior, a warrior instead of helper. So it is not good for man to be alone. God created a warrior, uh, kind of not a worry about stuff, a warrior fighter to be alongside him. Okay, so moving on, then we get to Genesis chapter 3, and the fall happens. And part of the fall, and all the sin and all the stuff that messes up our relationship with God, also comes in and messes up our relationship with one another. And we get this sense that what was a harmonious relationship between the man and the woman is beginning to become very messy, very tangled and very uneven and it says as the woman your desire will be for your husband and we begin to see how the unfoldings of our own selfishness and sin messes up all of humanity and all of relationships and so then it is very important for us as we head through the bible and as we read its passages to realize that when stories are being told in the bible perhaps stories that are horrible horrific things like rape or abuse of any kind that those things are not advocated by god but they are being commented on and shown as part of what's happening in humanity But as we keep reading through the Bible, eventually we get to the prophets and we get to say Joel, and we read in Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And you begin to get the sense that God all along is after this harmonious relationship with men and women working well together and upon both the man and the woman his spirit will be poured out he does not favor or prefer one sex above the other and then in Galatians 3, uh, 28, very famous verse in Paul's teaching, he says this, there's no longer Jew or Greek, there's no longer slave or free, there's no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus and belong to Christ. Then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And this verse is really sort of teaching us that in Christ Jesus, your nationality, your status your gender are not significant. Christ has come for all. He is the Lord of all. All have fallen short. All need his redemption. All can be filled with his Holy Spirit. And all, as they trust in him, are invited into an eternity with him where they shall sit on the throne and rule with him. You get this right at the end in Revelation chapter 3. They will rule with Christ, just as God had attended right back in Genesis chapter 1. 
So that's the great big story, okay? And um, throughout the Bible, I think there are significant moments when we see uh, females, in particular women, being raised up and being shown to be uh, as really important to God. Particularly when we look through the Gospel of Luke, Luke has a real passion to tell everyone that God has come for everybody. And so throughout his Gospel, it's really interesting, you get this, um, uh, the angel appearing to Zachariah, but then you get the account of the angel appearing to Mary. And, and you sort of go through Luke's Gospel and you see time and time again, Luke might tell a story from a man's at that time part of the world and then very quickly tells a story from a women's context in that time. And all the way through, Luke is showing Jesus has come for both men and women. And the way Jesus teaches the women around him and includes them and involves them was hugely radical. But what happens when we look at this whole big picture of the Bible is that we kind of, um, depending on our own culture, will kind of read it slightly differently. If we're in a culture where women are marginalized, uneducated, and powerless, we may be, we may be more happy to focus on the parts of the Bible that reflect that. But when women are equally well-educated as men, and there are officially at least no barriers to their rising to high office, it's harder then to ignore the places in Scripture where women appear to have a radical, culture-challenging equality in ministry. And so our culture often impacts our own reading of Scripture. And here we need to be very careful. I think just in case anyone is in doubt about women in the Bible, here's just a few, and they're up on the screen. In Judges chapter 4 and 5, we have the military judge and leader, Deborah. Deborah was in charge and very much in a leadership role. Uh, A man was then given the task in battle to complete, which he doesn't do, and she goes and does it. In, we get the example of Miriam in Micah 6. She's called a nation leader. She's also a worship leader. As they came out of Egypt, she was the first to lead the entire nation in song. In 2 Kings, you get Huldah, the reformer. Okay, not much is written about her, but she's there in the pages of our Bible. We have Queen Esther, the book of Esther. There are many women disciples in the Gospels. We have Mary of Bethany, Mary the sister of Martha, for whom Jesus says of her, it's so good that she's sat with the men learning. We have Joanna and Susanna, who basically uh, financed Jesus' ministry and went around too. We have female witnesses, the first and famous being Mary Magdalene, the first to meet the risen Jesus, the first to be sent with that message of hope back to the disciples. We have in Acts 16, Lydia, who's a businesswoman. In Romans 16, we meet Phoebe, a deacon in the church. It's very likely that Phoebe took the the letter of Romans to Rome, but not only would she have taken it there, she would have read it, and most likely answered questions about it, functioning both 
in that sort of deacon role, but also teaching role in the life of the church. In Acts 18, we meet Priscilla, who is a teacher with her husband. But interestingly, the author always puts her name first, which seems to designate that she was seen perhaps even in higher status to her husband. Uh, In Luke, we meet Anna, the prophet Anna. And we have Junia the Apostle in Romans 16. Now, there is some debate as to whether Junia was a woman or a man. There isn't time to go into this now, um, but there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that she was indeed a woman. So there we go. There's our overview of the Bible. Women are definitely not missing from the pages. So let's have a look at some of these tricky passages. Okay. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. It's difficult, isn't it, in our culture when we hear passages like this because there's a historical background to them. And um, there's a history of a time and still is times when they have been taken and used to abuse women. And so because of that, we find it very difficult to read them and to work out what we're going to say about them. But I stole this from a friend of mine called Andrew. And have a listen to this and see if it helps your understanding of this passage. So this is from Andrew. The word translated submit in Colossians 3.18 is a compound of the Greek word for under and the word for to arrange. The word for to arrange is used almost exclusively in a military context for how soldiers are to arrange themselves in a good formation. In other words, the form of submission that this passage is advocating is about fulfilling the vocation to be a warrior. Women are warriors who fight in all kinds of arenas to deliver or bring liberation to men, women and children who experience injustice and oppression. But if you are married, don't allow the long list of good causes to fight for to come between you and your marriage which is meant to be life-giving and a lifelong relationship. So he's saying that submitting to your husbands here is about remembering a good formation as a warrior, not to forget the key relationship with your husband. The word translated love in verse 19 means to prefer another over yourselves. Husbands, prefer your wife over yourself. Put her first before you. Interestingly, that sounds a lot more like submission as we would understand the term today than wives don't allow yourselves to be distracted out of good military formation. Moreover, the advice to husbands again gets lost in translation. You see, it goes on this passage to a warning about um, not uh, allowing fruit of bitterness to grow. And as we read on in the passage, there's this sense in which there's a reminder to the man's primary 
role as gardener, that metaphor of gardener that we encounter back in Genesis 2. And if the man is married, the primary garden to tend, the one to prefer, is your own clay. Uh, Over your own clay is your wife's. And so we begin to see in these passages when we unpick them and we understand the words and we look at them very clearly, actually a call for both in a marriage to allow the mutually flourishing of the other. This truly is beautiful and we ignore this advice at our own peril. What it is not advocating is that it's okay for a man or a husband to beat his wife, to um, force her to do things, to belittle her, and all those kind of things. But sadly, at times, people have taken this passage and used that to mean, oh, it's okay, I can bully my wife. It's not in the passage at all. Same is true when we look at the Ephesians passage, which is difficult um, for us to look at to you today. Uh, it's much more that encouraging, again, and mutual flourishing. Yes, wives, submit to your husband. Don't forget them. Make sure you're there for them. Make sure you're fighting for them too. Be involved with them, in partnership with them. And husbands, in turn, love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He lay himself down for her and died in her place. There's a stark challenge to both the man and the woman in marriage. So I think that's how we're to use those trigger passages. Quite important to get them right. Quite important to think about them and think about the words. So finally, we're going to look very briefly at women in leadership. So another place where this idea comes up that maybe God is sexist is people say, well, I've heard the Bible has said that women are not allowed to be leaders in the church. That sounds really sexist to me. And so, um, yeah, not sure about this. Okay. Now, there is a lot of complications as we get on and look at this. And I don't have time to go into all of them. So I'm very happy to do more talking afterwards. But in a way, how we understand this will be how we kind of choose to read and understand the whole of Scripture together. The argument against female leadership appeals directly to the supposed plain meaning of Scripture. And so it can be set out really concisely. And we've got these verses to look at. 1 Timothy 2.13 says this. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 14, there's some things that crop up there. In 11, it talks about the head of every man in Christ and the head of every woman is the man. And in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 33, it says, Women should remain silent in the congregations. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. It's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the congregation. I'll pause now if you'd all like to throw things at me. If uh, <laughs> permission, you can take me outside to stay me later. Um, 
So, okay, here I am doing the exact opposite of that passage. It said, women remain silent in the congregations and not allowed to speak. Um, They must be in submission. It's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the congregation. So how on earth, Nicola, do you feel okay about standing up here and talking? So let's have just a quick, uh, quick look at this. I'm not going to do uh, justice that I quite want to hear, but here we go. Right, let's take the Timothy passage first. Timothy, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, known as the pastoral letters. We've been in Titus all January. And um, they are very much directed to young leaders sorting out unruly churches. Okay? And in them contains the big gospel message of Scripture, which stands for all time. And then lots of practical advice. We are not to ignore the practical advice. But we are to think very carefully, what did it mean in that time and that context? And therefore, what should it mean for us today in our context? And I do believe that that bit of work is important. So in Timothy, it says, Timothy 2.13, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men. We need firstly to understand we've already seen examples of women teaching in Scripture who've been affirmed. And in Titus, we uh, read a few weeks back how uh, Paul is saying, women, I want you to teach. Uh, In that context, he does refer to them teaching the other younger women in the church, though, and not the men. Okay, so there's something around the fact that women seem okay maybe to teach in some parts of the scripture. Priscilla was all right to teach a man. We've already got Phoebe who probably helped teach uh, people to understand the book of Romans. Um, We've got this idea that they can teach, but there's maybe still an issue about whether they can teach men publicly. Okay, and it says we're not, you're not to have authority over man. But we need to understand here that the words have authority over is an incredibly bad translation of the Greek. Any good commentary will pick this up for you. The word in Greek that is used, I can't say it's on the screen, authentician, only occurs in the whole of scripture in this one passage and although it looks a bit like our English word authority its meaning is much more about misusing authority or usurping authority if Paul wanted to speak about exercising authority, there are, and there are tons of places in the New Testament that he does that, there's other words to be used for that. But he doesn't use that word here. The word here is about misusing authority or usurping authority. When we look at the context that Timothy was in, it is true that many of the women in those days would have been less well-educated than men. For the first time, they were being allowed to publicly worship and gather together in this new Christian community. But that would have been very radical and very different from the other kinds of worship they would have been used to. They were probably, you can imagine it, a little group of them a little bit overexcited. 
Maybe they started chitter-chattering and causing disruption. And Timothy is being told by Paul they need to be quiet. Ask their questions at home. They're causing disruption to worship and learning. The passage to me seems very much to be speaking into a specific context and not an authority over all time. There's not time to go into a bit more uh, on that, but I'd love you to read some of the resources that I recommend at the end. We're going to be looking just very quickly then at 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14, because that's the other passages where it talks about in 1 Corinthians 14, women not speaking. I just want to pick up a few points really quickly. Firstly, again, we need to do a lot of work to understand these passages, okay? 1 Corinthians 11 says some incredibly strange things. It says, women, don't cut your hair because it might offend the angels. Um, And it also says, um, you know, wear a headscarf over your head when, when you're talking in church, okay? So could all the women just leave now because none of you have got headscarves on? Okay, we'll see you later. Jilly, you've got your hair cut. The angels are not happy about that, okay? What are we going to do with this? It's complex, and right now in this specific talk, I haven't quite got time to kind of unpack all of that, and if you want to ask it as another question sometime, I will. Um, But let's just suffice it for now to say that quite a lot of work has to be done to understand what on earth Paul was talking about in that specific context, and then to work out, does it apply for all time or not? And I would say, by and large, the church has gone, no, it doesn't, which is why women are walking around with some short haircuts and um, why we're not all wearing headscarves. If we just take ourselves back out of the passage a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to 14 is all about order in the life of God's church. It's all about allowing worship to happen well in a way that's going to please God and be really helpful to everybody at that time in their culture to come in and feel okay in church. In fact, Chapter 11 is all about how we allow women to pray and prophesy publicly in church. And Paul is giving them things that they need to do to help that to happen well. Chapter 12 is talking all about how the Spirit gives everyone a gift and how everyone's to be involved in worship. So, if Paul said in chapter 11 that women can speak and prophesy in the church, chapter 12 he said that the Spirit falls on everyone and everyone arrives at worship with something to share and bring. And then chapter 14 he says women suddenly be silent. We need to again think what's going on with these passages. It's important for us to realise that verses 34 and 35 in most of the ancient manuscripts were actually found in the margin and not in the text. They seem like they're like an additional note that Paul added on. This further compels the argument that they were being delivered to a very specific context at the time. And again, we need to look at it. When it says women don't speak, it's, um, the word might be better to be said talk. In the Greek, it has a sense of sort of 
babbling and carrying on. This idea, again, perhaps, that some women were babbling away in the congregation, having a little chit-chat to each other, and Paul is saying, shut up. And as we look at this carefully, and as we look at what he's just said, it makes no sense that he's saying that they forever should never speak in church. He's just been teaching them how they should publicly prophesy and pray in chapter 11. It's far more logically likely that he is talking to a specific group of people in that church than he to just, because they're being annoying. And it's easy to see how it might have been the women at that time that may have been more tempted to babbling. They wouldn't have been used to sitting in lectures necessarily. Not all of them, but many of them would have been less well-educated. They might have been struggling to understand what was going on. And Paul's saying, yeah, that's great, but ask your questions later at home, not right in the middle of the sermon that's going on. It's distracting. No one can follow anything. These passages are all about order in worship and helping us to worship well. And so it is because of that that I feel okay to stand up here today. Um, And we could look into that all in tons more detail and uh, loads. I know I've done quite a bad job, but hopefully on the screen there's some resources coming up. Three uh, books I'd recommend uh, you to look at if you're interested in the subject a little bit more. But no, God is not sexist. We as his people, both women and men, can be sexist at times. And so we should examine ourselves carefully, look at scripture very carefully, and make sure that we worship together well in his church. Amen.